This week's episode is brought to you by K16 Solutions. Whether you need help migrating course content to a new LMS platform or are looking for a more affordable way to archive student data, visit k16solutions.com to learn more about their migration and archiving solutions. That's k16solutions.com. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast. I'm Jeff Young, the managing editor here at Ed Surge, an independent national newsroom covering how education is changing. Today we're running one of my very favorite interviews um, that I've ever gotten to do for this podcast. It is a rerun, um, but hey, it's vacation season. I hope people are getting to take one. So some of you might have heard it already, but even if you caught it the first time, I really encourage you to listen again. For one thing, it's an interview with John Green. He's made some of the best, certainly most popular educational videos ever um, through his Crash Course YouTube channel. And also, he is just a deep thinker on education and on the broader culture that we're all living in. So I was just looking at the New York Times bestseller list the other day, and there it was. His new book was at the very top of the print and ebook nonfiction category. The book is The Anthropocene Reviewed, and as you'll hear, we talk all about that work in the second half of this episode. To be clear, we actually talk about the podcast, The Anthropocene Reviewed, um, which is one of my very favorite podcasts of all time. If you haven't heard it, you should definitely do that. But since this interview ran, Green has turned that into a book, and clearly a good one. But the main reason you should keep listening is that it was recorded, as you'll hear, just a few weeks after U.S. schools first went into lockdown for COVID-19. And he reflects on what that felt like and what he hoped that we'd all learn about the importance of teachers from this horrible experience. And have we learned those lessons? As we're coming out of this pandemic, it's worth going back to that moment and remembering what it felt like and what we've all been through. So here we go. That episode, which originally ran on April 28th, 2020. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, a reporter and editor here at Ed Surge. In this time of pandemic, when schools and colleges have shifted teaching online to slow the spread of COVID-19, more and more teachers find themselves making videos for their students. And more students are turning to educational videos online. I know in my house, where my wife and I are juggling our full-time jobs and helping our five-year-old and our eight-year-old do their remote schooling, educational videos have become a huge part of daily life. So for this week's podcast, I decided to reach out to one of the masters of making educational videos, John Green, and ask his advice and thoughts on education during this unprecedented time. For those who don't know John Green, he is one of the most famous YouTubers, uh, people who have built a following by making videos on YouTube. Since 2012, he and his brother Hank Green have made educational videos, most notably under the banner of Crash Course, and it's grown to a library of more than 1,200 explainer videos, many of which have gotten more than a million views each and are assigned in schools and colleges around the world. Green is also a best-selling young adult novelist. His book, The Fault in Our Stars, was made into a major motion picture. Crash Course tackles weighty subjects like European history and organic chemistry. But it does so with wit and humor, and it has this snappy pace that's more like an episode of The Simpsons than a typical classroom lecture. I would argue that what John Green ends up doing best, at least in my view, 
is exude an infectious curiosity that makes viewers want to keep learning, even if it's on a topic they didn't even know they were interested in. Here's how Green begins a video about the agricultural revolution, for instance. It's the first video in a, a series on world history. I think this short clip sums up Green's philosophy of why anyone would want to know the history of the world, whether they're a student or not. Hello, learned and astonishingly attractive pupils. My name is John Green, and I want to welcome you to Crash Course World History. Over the next 40 weeks together, we will learn how in a mere 15,000 years, humans went from hunting and Mr. gathering... Mr. Green, Mr. Green, Mr. Is, is this going to be on the test? Yeah, about the test. The test will measure whether you are an informed, engaged, and productive citizen of the world. And it will take place in schools and bars and hospitals and dorm rooms and in places of worship. You will be tested on first dates, in job interviews, while watching football and while scrolling through your Twitter feed. The test will judge your ability to think about things other than celebrity marriages, whether you'll be easily persuaded by empty political rhetoric and whether you'll be able to place your life and your community in a broader context. The test will last your entire life and it will be comprised of the millions of decisions that when taken together make your life yours. And everything, everything will be on it. I connected with Green this week. Uh, he was in his basement of his home in Indianapolis where he makes some of his crash course videos, especially these days. I started by asking Green why he decided to get into making educational videos in the first place. So we wanted to make educational videos because we felt like there was this huge need. This was back in a day when when to watch high quality educational videos, you still had to pay a lot of money, like like libraries had to pay a lot of money, school libraries did. And there's definitely still a, a, a place for that kind of really high quality, uh, expensive content. But we just felt that there was a, a huge opportunity to make educational video, make it for free, give it to, to students and, and to teachers and to let them figure out if it's useful and how it's useful. The challenge for us wasn't having that idea. We'd had that idea for years. We'd been talking about it. We'd had so many phone calls about it, dreaming about how this might be possible, testing it out in various ways with our audience. The challenge was figuring out how do you go from two guys living 2,000 miles apart who make videos alone in their basements to something bigger than that and the other guy is your brother which I, I'll right i should say the other guy is my brother i never i never name him <laughs> my, my brother hank who's the ceo of our company and the co-founder of crash course uh, lives in missoula montana and most of the team working on crash course now lives in missoula but we have about 10 people here in indianapolis who focus on crash course as well so you um, don't have, however, a background in teaching particularly. No, I'm not a teacher. I, I am. I mean, if I've learned anything in the last six weeks, it's that I'm not a teacher. I, I teaching requires uh, both a specific set of skills and uh, I think a really extensive training. And I don't have either of those things. I hope that I've never claimed to be a teacher because I really, really don't think I am one or have ever been one. You know, what would you put on your what would you put on your business card, so to speak? I mean, I, and I hate to interrupt you, but like, what? How would you describe what you do? Well, I I I I have worked very hard not to have a business card. <laughs> I don't I don't ever want to have a business card if I can avoid it. Um, I when people ask what I do, I usually say I work in educational video. And that, that's, that's how I think of that work. I don't think of it as teaching. 
teaching is something that happens between students and a teacher. I, I think that the, the kind of one-way street that is necessitated by educational video, it just isn't teaching. It's valuable and it's important and I think it's important and I obviously believe in its importance and I think it can be a tool that helps teachers and students, but it can never replace teaching. It can never replace the classroom. And that's kind of the bet that Hank and I made from the very beginning. At the time, back in 2011, there were all of these educational media companies that all had models that were based around becoming the classroom or, you know, virtual spaces overtaking classrooms. And Hank and I felt like classrooms and teachers teaching are always going to be at the center of how kids learn. And so we wanted to make something that could maybe reinforce some of the learnings from class or maybe introduce some of the ideas that will then be discussed in greater detail in class. So do you have like a, a role model for what that was, you know, because I mean, is there somebody you look to like some public intellectual that was on TV when you were a kid or, or yeah, I guess I'm curious about your kind of vision when you closed your eyes and like made that in the beginning. There are definitely some public intellectuals whose work I admire, you know, more, a more recent example would be the writer, Rebecca Solnit, who finds a way to write with great intellectual rigor while at the same time writing for a broad audience. I think when I was a kid, it was Roger Ebert. Uh, Roger Ebert, you know, reviewed movies for regular people, but he reviewed them with a seriousness that really resonated with me. But in thinking about Crash Course, I think the biggest inspiration was certainly our, our father. Our dad is a documentary filmmaker and had experience making educational video, you know, with with a much different business model uh, in the 1980s. And, you know, like a lot of kids with great parents, I think all Hank and I ever really have wanted to do is make our parents proud. And, you know, I hope that, I hope that we've done that with Crash Course. I totally hear what you're saying that you don't see yourself as a teacher, but now you have a lot of teachers suddenly because of this pandemic that we're all, that's changed all of our worlds in the last few weeks, we have a lot of teachers suddenly into educational video <laughs> yeah. because, because of the nature of, of their, as one of the things they're doing. And I guess, you know, I know that there's been a hunger among our audience of educators to hear tips from people that have made educational video. Um, you've, your crash course has, uh, you know, hundreds, I think over a thousand videos. Do you have any are there a few tips or advice you would give to people suddenly making educational video or, or working in video? <laughs> I guess I can give some, some broad tips. Ultimately, you have a relationship with, with your kids, and if, especially if you're making something for your kids, not for like all history students in the United States. It's okay to be human. In fact, like it's kind of better to be a little human. It's okay to say like, this is not ideal. <laughs> I, 
In fact, I think some of the best moments in my son, my son's in fourth grade, my son's e-learning experiences have been those moments where everybody is able to say together like, well, I, I wish we were in the classroom because it would be objectively better, but we aren't. So we're going to make the best of it that we can here. As far as like the practical tips on making videos, use a lot of jump cuts if you can. It's pretty easy now, even if you're shooting on your phone, you can edit on your phone, you can edit out uh, you know, clips of you saying, um, or when you go off on a tangent and just hard cut into the next thing. And it doesn't really matter if the cut doesn't work perfectly because these kids have been watching YouTube their entire lives and they're used to bad cuts. Like they've, they grew up watching bad cuts. They actually think that like a poorly edited video is in some ways like cooler or more authentic. I, I think a lot of times than, than a really slickly edited one. So I would say don't just don't be, don't be afraid of the medium. And then the other thing I would say is watch some good YouTubers. Watch, you know, the people who have found a way, not just the educational people, but the people who found a way to build big audiences. But there are a lot of great educational video creators out there who we can learn from. And I'm learning from them all the time. I'm learning from them about new editing techniques, about how to create the sense that, you, you, you know, you're there with them and you're listening uh, to them, even though, of course, you can't be. And and so I think that a mix of watching good YouTube video and practicing is the only way. But I also think just don't be, I mean, don't be so hard on yourself. This is an impossible situation and we're all just doing our best within it. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel that. And in fact, my uh, five-year-old walked in and a, and a minute ago, you probably just couldn't see him because he was below the, below the camera line. But um, yeah, this is, this is, this is our lives right now that are, that are complicated by things that you, nobody would have planned to put it this way. No. Um, yeah. After the break, the work that brings John Green the most joy these days, and how to keep audiences watching or listening. Stay with us. What do Northeastern University, Rutgers, Wake Forest University, CSU Fullerton, and St. Mary's University of Minnesota all have in common? Well, they and dozens of other institutions around the globe have used K-16 solutions to help them migrate to their new LMS. Gone are the days of burdening faculty with manually moving LMS content or paying for a white glove service. Both options are archaic, riddled with errors requiring a tremendous amount of course reconstruction, and both are manual processes. Introducing Scaffold by K16 Solutions. Scaffold is a revolutionary product that allows you to move online content from one LMS to another in real time, capturing details such as course structure, quizzes, tests, and even question pools using sophisticated but simple automation. Scaffold replaces what used to be a manual resource-intensive operation, transforming LMS course migration into a quick, accurate, and affordable process. Most importantly, scaffold migration requires little to no manual intervention by faculty, staff, or anyone else. To learn more about K16 Solutions automated LMS migration solutions, visit k16solutions.com. That's k16solutions.com. Now back to the episode. John Green doesn't just make educational videos these days. Among his other creations is a monthly podcast called The Anthropocene Reviewed. In some ways, this podcast is the opposite of Crash Course. 
Rather than tackling huge topics like world history and the Cold War, he goes narrow, tackling things like the cultural significance of scratch-and-sniff stickers uh, or the history of rock-paper-scissors. For me, this podcast brings a pleasure reminiscent of a classic Seinfeld episode, the show that famously claimed to be about nothing, but it, you know, did comment on the world. Except that unlike Seinfeld, John Green is likely to quote a passage of poetry and turn what starts out as a review of Taco Bell breakfast menu into a commentary on cultural appropriation. Oh, and his clever formula for the show is that after delivering some deep essay about a cultural phenomena, he gives it a rating on a one to five star scale. For instance, Green ends up giving the Taco Bell breakfast menu two stars, as if his thoughtful commentary could be subbed up in a single number. And this unusual podcast of reviews ends up being largely about John Green. They include surprisingly personal stories about his own relationship to whatever he's talking about that month, so that they operate like little starting points for a memoir. I have listened to every episode of this Anthropocene Reviewed, and I totally recommend it. I personally find them inspiring. And it's a different kind of inspired than after a video. After I finish a crash course video, I kind of want to learn about that topic and dig into it. But after I listen to an episode of Green's podcast, I end up wanting to think more about my own personal relationship with the world around me. And in the age of COVID-19, that self-reflection seems more important than ever. Anyway, as you can guess, I was super excited to ask John Green about his podcasting and about how he sees it in relation to his educational video work. Well, I think first it's different because Crash Course has to have a sense of authority behind it. And that's important. It's also limiting in some ways because anything that has to have a sense of authority behind it can only have so much of a particular point of view. I mean, inevitably, everything, even the, the purportedly extremely authoritative, has a point of view. But um, you have to be hyper conscious of those biases and, in some cases, try to tack against them wh where you can or where it's appropriate to do so. In the Anthropocene Reviewed, it's much more personal. So I might be you know, telling the history of the astonishing history of Piggly Wiggly grocery stores and the rise in the United States of this idea that individuals would shop for their own groceries, which in turn led to the rise of advertising and marketing directed uh, to consumers when it came to consumer products from groceries to cleaning products. Huge shift in American history. But when I tell that story in the Anthropocene Reviewed, I approach it from the perspective of my great grandfather, who was a grocer in a small town in Tennessee and whose livelihood was upended by this, you know, big, far more efficient machine in the form of Piggly Wiggly. And so instead of trying to correct for biases or, you know, be... Uh, super aware of them in the Anthropocene Reviewed, I'm nakedly and obviously myself, and I'm responding to these stories from history or, or from science as myself. And in a recent episode, you mentioned that you see, it does say reviewed, you see reviews, not just in your podcast, as all reviews as kind of memoir. Yeah. Well, I started out as a book reviewer, so I, I, I reviewed books for Booklist Magazine from about 2000 to about 2006, and I've also reviewed books for other 
publications as well. And, and th that was before everyone became a reviewer of everything, you know, like that was before Yelp. And I, th the example that I often use is that when my first novel, Looking for Alaska, was published in 2005, it got eight um, reviews on Amazon in the first seven months that it was out. And, and it was it was read about 8,000 times. So it got like one out of every 1,000 people wrote a review. When The Fault in Our Stars was published in the first six months, um, one out of every four people wrote a review. And that was only seven years later. Suddenly, very suddenly, in the context of history, everyone is reviewing everything on a five-star scale, a scale that did not exist 50 years ago, and that is extremely strange if you think about it. Like the idea that we can boil down complex experiences into uh, a single data point. It's clearly more about what the data needs, you know, what the company's collecting the data need than it is about what we need. So that idea fascinates me, you know, that, that we're feeding the algorithm just as the algorithm's feeding us. And the initial idea for the podcast really came from thinking about my life as a reviewer and how in some ways I miss that life and how even though I never used the word I in my reviews and, and it was always from an authoritative perspective, you know, I was still there. I was still in those reviews. I was still contained within them and I could read them and I could see things about myself from when I was 22 or 23 that were creeping in through the, through the cracks. And so I wanted to make a review show, I guess, where I was more aware of the fact that when I'm reviewing something, it's as much about the place from, from which it is being reviewed as it is about the ostensible subject of the review. So that was kind of the initial inspiration for the podcast. Now, since then, in the last two and a half years, it's taken a bunch of weird, unexpected turns. But that was that was that was how I pitched it. It's so interesting because in some ways I almost feel like it's this kind of serialized in a jump cut way memoir of your life. Because yeah. about half of every episode is really internal looking. Yeah. The first time I tried to write something like this, it was a review of Diet Dr. Pepper, which is my favorite soda. And my wife read it and she was like, it's good. It's a little bit, she said, it's a little bit... Um, you you're acting like you're the smartest guy in the room you know like it's a little bit like i'm cornered at a cocktail party and somebody's mansplaining diet dr pepper to me and i was like yeah I, it is and i i kind of yeah that is the problem with it and she was like why don't you acknowledge in the review that you've that you drink more diet dr pepper than almost any other living human like i feel like once you acknowledge that our whole relationship with the conversation changes. And so, yeah, as a result of that, I, I began putting myself in the reviews and then I began putting myself in them much, much more as I began to understand that really when you're reviewing anything, whether it's a meal at a restaurant or a haircut, you're, you're, you're not just reviewing the experience, you're reviewing your experience. And for most of us, those reviews may be the only form of memoir we leave. I mean, I think the Anthropocene Reviewed is almost certainly to be the only form of memoir I, uh, I leave behind.
Yeah, and I, I wonder if the experience of doing the Anthropocene Reviewed has changed your educational videos in any way or made you think differently about those. I think we'd already been thinking differently about them, if that makes sense. Like, I, I, I think that this is all part of the same change that I've gone through, but that also a lot of our colleagues at Crash Course have gone through and in, in thinking, because when we started out, we didn't know, we had no, we did not know that we were going to end up in so many schools and that so many kids and teachers would be trusting us, but also, you know, using our perspectives and, and giving them a sense of authority. And at first, in some ways, that I mean, it was really exciting for us. Like the the show was, you know, far, far more successful than we ever imagined it would be. But in other ways, it was a little bit intimidating and scary because we were suddenly having to grapple with, well, now if we make a mistake, like that mistake can become uh, true, you know, or at least true in the minds of lots of, of, of young people. And, and so we had to really formalize our process a lot more. We had to, you know, work with more curriculum consultants and, and more writers and, and, and just get more expert eyes on the scripts and more expert eyes on cuts of the video and cuts of the animation. And so I think even though the Anthropocene Reviewed is kind of a, a gag, like it's it's a joke setup, because um, you're reviewing things. I guess on they're both both. I, I guess the journey that I feel like we're on now is toward rigor, toward can you be truly, truly rigorous in your intellectual pursuits while still making stuff for a broad audience. And when you have, sorry, truly rigorous in, in Crash Course or in Anthropocene Reviewed? Or both, both, both. I want them, my hope is that they'll both be rigorously researched and, 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 and correct or as close to what we currently think of as correct as possible, but still fun. Like when I was a kid, I kind of thought that the opposite of fun was hard and that the opposite of hard was fun and in adulthood one of the things that i've learned is that many many times what is difficult or what is challenging is also really fun and the challenge is a big part of what makes it fun so that's i guess what we're trying to get across Hmm. And instill that in the students in some way as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and inspire them to feel like learning is not something that you do in order to merely get a grade or in order merely to get a diploma, but that instead learning really is the work of your lifetime. It is both the opportunity and the responsibility of personhood learning about the world around you, learning about your place in it, learning about the lives of other people so that you can better contextualize your life in community. That is not primarily about diplomas or even job training. It, 
in a way, it's a form of civics or a form of uh, social participation. And so I, I think that that's what we're trying to get across. Like, this is fun. And I know there are lots of parts of it that aren't fun. Like, I totally get that. We're doing organic chemistry right now, and there are a lot of parts of organic chemistry that are objectively not fun. But what is fun, and I think what is really fun, is understanding how chemical reactions work and understanding how those reactions are making this conversation possible and making it possible for me to move my arms and making it possible for me to talk. It's mind blowing. And I love that feeling of, of just having ha like being like, whoa, uh, and our organic chemistry cra crash course has given me a lot of that already. <laughs> it's it's interesting that you, you describe, you know, a, a kind of commentary against kind of learning f for the test or learning for a grade or a, a number. I noticed crash course isn't on any platform that I know of where you can where it's gamified, you know, like even on Khan Academy, I think there are yeah. ways you can not badges. To, you know, there are yeah, badges and yeah. lots of, lots of sites. Um, it's a thing, but you're yeah. not adding that to, or, or, or have you, and I maybe missed it. No, we course. haven't. I, I mean, I, to be clear, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with using the, um, the brainwashing tricks that video games figured out and applying those those tricks to helping people to learn um i i'm not I, i'm not here to judge anybody else's way of, of trying to get people to learn I'm, I'm in favor of anything that works um but but for us you know we, we want to we, we want the stuff to be able to stand on its own if that makes sense at least for now um so so that you watch it not because there's a there's a prize at the end, but because you like it. I guess what, where do you think we are in, you know, the, the the educational video, you know, industry if it's if it is or or space maybe is better for for people that are doing it on a kind of still in their basements with lower production values like you started out, or at a higher end um, Hollywoodish kind of version is it. Do you think do you think things have? It seems like some of what you were doing early on was a little bit of a reaction against some styles that were out there. Do you think things have kind of improved, so to speak, or are are, are things uh, more authentic now than they were then? Or where where are we? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of really good educational video out there. In some ways, I think the biggest challenge now is discovery, is helping teachers and students to find the right videos for them because even if you know crash course talks about some aspect of computer science in the perfect way for some people it won't be the perfect way for other people and building out that part of it so that we can all discover the kinds of educational video that will help us and that will inspire us, not the kinds that have inspired other people. That seems like a big challenge to me. The challenge of discovery is a big challenge in online video generally. It's also a big challenge on other media platforms. It's also a big challenge on television. Podcasting. So think, yeah, podcasting. I mean, it's a huge issue with podcasting. So I think that is 
the the next big challenge that educational video faces. But when I look at what things look like now compared to what they look looked like in 2011 or 2012, it's 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 wonderful. Uh, there there are so many great channels, so many people talking in humanizing ways about the stuff they find they find so interesting and sharing that passion in an infectious way that makes me feel it too you know whether that's really abstract math with three blue one brown or whether that's Vihart talking about the the plans to to re uh open the economy after the the end of of this crisis I am really so grateful for and and so overwhelmed by the size of it now and it's really exciting uh, so I I don't know where we go from here I've never been good at predicting the future uh I'm, I'm so I'm certainly don't feel qualified to predict the future right now amid a level of uncertainty that I've never experienced before in my lifetime. I think most people probably feel the same way. Um, but what I, what I do think we've learned from the last six weeks, or at least what, what we've learned in, in my house is classrooms matter. Schools aren't going anywhere. We need schools. Uh, when we need to e-learn, we will because we need to, but students, I think really, really thrive in classroom environments. There may eventually be ways to to make some of that virtual for some portion of students. But I mean, for the fourth grader who's upstairs e-learning right now, I think he needs to be in a classroom and I think he needs to be, you know, led by a teacher. So my hope is that on the other side of this, there will be more recognition of the absolute essentiality of teachers, not just to the lives of students, but to the entire social order. The social order depends upon really good teachers sharing their knowledge with kids, getting kids excited about learning, because that's those kids then go on to solve all of the problems that we're creating. So. I hope that that comes out of this. Uh, I know that every parent I've talked to who is doing a, a stra this strange mix of homeschooling and e-learning feels a deep level of gratitude to uh, to teachers and, and a much d deeper, I think, understanding of just how difficult that work is and, and just how uh, important it is. I think I'll leave it there. Thank you so much for taking time from your basement uh, to talk to us today. <laughs> oh, it's great to talk with you. This has been an encore episode of the Ed Surge podcast. Listening back to that was actually pretty strange. Um, I don't know, for me, for some reason. I think I sounded really somber at the beginning of it, for good reason, and considering it was the start of a very scary pandemic. I definitely had no idea how long it would all last. And let's face it, we are not even fully out of this thing yet. Okay, that's it for this week. Um, the usual reminder, subscribe to the Ed Search Podcast, um, please, wherever you listen. We're on all the platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, some I don't even know, probably. Or better yet, sign up for our new Ed Search Podcast newsletter, um, which is growing fast. 
You can get notified there of every episode and find links to bonus material. Just go to edsurge.com and click on newsletters at the top right-hand corner. This show is produced by me, Jeff Young. I am on Twitter at J.R. Young, at sign J.R. Young. We'll be back next week with a fresh episode. Thank you for listening.